Shall we pray uh, as we stand? Lord God, we do thank you uh, very much for your word. And we pray this morning that you would uh, illuminate it to us, that we might uh, see Jesus more clearly and trust him more fully, we pray. In his name. Amen. Please do sit down. We're in Mark 11, uh, page 1016. It'd be great uh, if you could uh, turn it up. Page 1016. Only a few years ago, uh, Jonathan Edwards, the ex-triple jumper, used to be one of the most uh, well-known Christians in the UK. And he spoke openly uh, and passionately about his faith in Jesus. And he even ended up presenting songs of praise, would you believe it? And in February 2007, he said this, he said this, my relationship with Jesus and God is fundamental to everything I do. I've made a commitment and dedication in that relationship to serve God in every area of my life. And yet some four months after that interview, he turned his back on Jesus and gave another interview and said this, when you think about it rationally, it does seem incredibly improbable that there is a God. I feel internally happier than at any time of my life. How terribly sad. Many of, many of us probably know people who have given up on being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Or people who are living a life of compromise uh, that means they're no longer following Jesus as they should. I've experienced it with friends from my school days, uh, friends from university, friends in Norwich, people who once seemed committed followers of Jesus, but who have now turned their backs on him. It's a desperately sad thing to witness. Maybe from time to time we even wonder, how can we be sure that we won't fall away? How can we be sure that we will follow Jesus uh, to the end? I guess there are lots of reasons, aren't there, why people uh, give up following Christ. Uh, Life is full of temptations uh, and pressures. Other stuff crowds in. Jesus gets crowded out. But perhaps the biggest problem, and the problem that underlies uh, all of the reasons that that people give up uh, following Jesus is this. We just have the wrong view of Jesus. For many people, in the end, Jesus, Jesus just becomes something of a tired disappointment, a sort of cumbersome letdown. It looked as if Jesus would solve all their problems, but they find out that in some ways he only adds to them. Following Jesus is tough. If we're here today as Christians, we know that. It's not easy. A life following Jesus is not a life of unending good things. And in the face of this sobering realisation people often just reach the conclusion that Jesus cannot be trusted. He just doesn't deliver. And if we have the wrong view of Jesus, we risk stumbling or walking away uh, when times get challenging. Well, this morning's passage, uh, as Mark has mentioned already, is is here to help us get a right view of Jesus. I I wonder, do do you notice that from verse 11? Let's have a look at verse 11. Page 1016. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. 
He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Don't you think that's a really odd end uh, to this passage? We've just had this triumphal entry, the level of expectation uh, is hard to contain, conflict is in the air, yet what does Jesus do? He goes and has a quick recce of the temple, sees that everything is closed, and heads back to Bethany. No sooner has he arrived, than he leaves again. What an anti-climax. So what's going on? Uh, Well, at heart, this passage is not about arriving in Jerusalem. This trip from Bethphage is actually a visual teaching exercise uh, for the disciples. It's an event that would show them who he is and what he's come to do. Because by by riding into Jerusalem, uh, Jesus is is making a symbolic act of self-disclosure. By his actions, uh, he's linking himself and his teaching uh, with the scriptures. Up to now, Jesus has predicted history, uh, and now he's fulfilling it. This is an event staged for the disciples, so they could more clearly understand his identity and his mission, something they hadn't fully got to date. And it's a vital lesson. Soon the going is going to get tough, really tough. So Jesus wants them to understand who he is. And of course, that is a vital lesson for us. We can't relate to someone properly until we know who they are. And our eternal destinies depend on how we relate to Jesus. So we need to fully understand his identity and his mission. I think there are two things for us to note in this passage that help us do that, help us get to grips with his identity identity and his mission. They're these, his sovereignty and his humility. His sovereignty and his humility. So first, Jesus' sovereignty, verses uh, 1 to 6. One of the most striking uh, aspects uh, to this passage is how Jesus plans and stage manages his entry into Jerusalem. He's pulling, isn't he, all of the strings for what's going on here. He's in absolute control. Well, maybe that's not what you see in this passage. I guess it would be easy, wouldn't it, to look at this passage and say, this is actually where it all starts to unravel. Surely Jesus is at the whim of the crowds. Yes, for now the cry is Hosanna, but in the space of a few days, it's going to be crucify him. One of his mates, Judas, uh, turns against him and betrays him. The plotting religious leaders, they start to make all the running. And in the end, Jesus' fate is sealed by Pilate, a man who's, who's just more interested in his own ambition than in saving the life of another man. In the end, surely Jesus was just another man crushed uh, by the ruthless Roman machine. And by being in Jerusalem at the Passover, he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, as we probably guessed, to conclude that would be to miss the truth of this passage. Jesus is in absolute control. He is orchestrating everything. No one takes his life from him. Instead, he willingly gives up his life. The opening four words of this passage are a really important clue. Do you notice those in verse 1? As they approached at Jerusalem... The sort of words that would be very easy just to pass over and miss, but they're of massive significance. You only have to go back to chapter 10 uh, and verse 3 of Mark's Gospel, where Jesus has explicitly told his disciples 
that they would be going up to Jerusalem, that once there he would be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he would be condemned to death, mocked, flogged, and killed, and that three days later he would rise from the dead. Jesus had laid it all out. He did it earlier. You look at chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus had taught his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected and killed, but that three days later he would rise again. It must happen. It was an absolute necessity. Jesus' destiny, the purpose of him going up to Jerusalem, was the big thing, the big thing that he'd been teaching his disciples over and over again. And in doing it, he'd been saying to his disciples, I'm in control. I will decide my destiny. Jesus is taking deliberate action in going up to Jerusalem. His control is also shown by how he obtains his mode of transport, uh, verses 1 to 6. Do you, do you notice that? It's a rather sort of pedantic account of how to find a colt or a donkey, uh, as the animals described in, in the other Gospels. Jesus gives very precise instructions to his disciples about how to go about getting the animal, and then we're told the donkey is found and claimed exactly as Jesus said it would happen, almost in a mirror-like fashion. Why does Mark bother to include that level of detail? It's not thrilling stuff, is it, really? Because he wants us to understand the divine organisation skills that are at play here. We don't know how Jesus got the donkey. He could have set it up in advance. It could have been some sort of divine foreknowledge. But the point is that Jesus is in charge of all that is going on. If you think about it, why does Jesus even bother getting a donkey? Apart from the odd boat trip uh, here and there, he generally walks everywhere. And Bethphage was right on the outskirts uh, of Jerusalem, the sort of distance that somewhere like Kringleford or Thorpe Marriott, Marriott would be to Norwich, that sort of distance. Why bother? Well, the importance of the donkey would not have been lost uh, on the crowds, many of whom would have known their scriptures uh, well. Because by riding into Jerusalem, Jesus uh, is making an unmistakable claim as he comes in on a donkey. Just listen to these words from uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Through his actions, Jesus is claiming uh, that the picture that Zechariah paints uh, of the entry of God's anointed king into Jerusalem, that applies to him. By his actions, Jesus is claiming the fulfilment of that prophecy. So Jesus is deciding exactly how and when he will enter Jerusalem. Nothing is going to thwart his plans. This is the King of Kings entering Jerusalem for his own coronation. Coronation that wasn't about a crown of gold and a throne, but about a crown of thorns and a cross. Yet there's no doubt that Jesus knows exactly uh, what he's doing. If you actually think about it, such is the control of Jesus in what is going on, that his enemies end up doing exactly what he wants them to do 
even when they think they're acting against him. It's remarkable. Complete and utter control. I think that's a great reminder for us uh, this morning. If Jesus was in total control uh, as he rode into Jerusalem on his way to the cross, then surely he is in total control uh, today. If you're anything like me, that's something that's, that's, we're, we're really tempted from time to time to doubt. That truth comes under fire, doesn't it, when we see uh, thousands of people, including children, murdered on the streets of Syria. I guess in our own lives, many of us are facing difficult times, dark times. And we ask, is Jesus in control? We live in a broken uh, and decaying world. And for now, the kingdom of God is only a partial kingdom. So we will feel grief and pain. And life won't always work out uh, as we think it should work out. And like Job and like the psalmist, we might cry out to God in despair, Why, O Lord? Why, O Lord? And that's fine. But our circumstances don't alter the truth uh, that Jesus is in control. He was in control as he rode into Jerusalem. And he's in control today. And the question is, will we trust him? Will we trust him? The crowd in Jerusalem was was very fickle, wasn't it? They shout Hosanna uh, when Jesus arrives, but crucify crucify him uh, when it seems that he surrenders tamely to the Roman authorities just a few days later. We need to pray that we would be different. We need to pray that we would have the resources we need to be godly uh, in the circumstances we find ourselves in. That is how we show our trust in Christ. By deciding uh, to be godly in our circumstances. We need to hold on to those words in Romans 8 verse 28, to know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And we need to trust Jesus. Will we choose to do that? So that's the first clue to Jesus' identity, uh, his sovereignty. I think the second clue uh, is his humility, verses uh, 7 to 10. As Mark was mentioning, the the joyful enthusiasm of the crowds in this passage was born from a a really deep longing. Uh, And it was this, they longed for a time uh, when the world would be put right, Uh, when there would be an end to the Roman occupation of their land, when instead of being slaves in their own country, they would be free, where instead of being ruled unjustly, abused and oppressed, they could have godly rulers, where the ancient glories of Israel would, would once again be restored. That was their longing. And it was a longing focused on the coming of one person, the Messiah. The Messiah, the person who would come to put the world to rights. And they think it's about to happen. It's about to happen. At last, here is the promised Messiah. Here he is riding into Jerusalem to seize the throne that was his and free Israel from its political oppressors. This is their independence day. That's what they're thinking. The, the excitement and the, the sense of expectation is clear from what the crowd says and does. Do, do you see that? They spread their cloaks and they cut branches on the road for Jesus to walk on. Verse 8. That's what you do when you greet a king. 
That's what happened with King Jehu when he was anointed uh, in 1 Kings. They laid out garments for him. It's a kind of first century red carpet that's being rolled out. They cry out, Hosanna, verse 9. Hosanna is a cry for help uh, that's often featured in the Old Testament. It means save us. And it's used in the context of someone seeking help from a king, an appeal from someone weaker to someone who's stronger and able to help them. Verse 10, they shout of the coming kingdom of David, referring to the promise that God gave to King David that an eternal kingdom would be established, ruled by a king in David's line. And they cry out, verse 9, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a refrain from the Psalms, the songbook of the Bible. And by chanting it, the crowd are kind of building each other up, affirming each other. This is Jesus, the king. He's arriving. It's all going to happen. They believe that Jesus is the saviour king they've been hoping for. He seems to be the answer to their longing. Yet something's not quite right. Jesus, Jesus enters the city, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. There's no army in tow, just a rather motley collection of 12 fishermen uh, and tax collectors. What, what good are they going to be? The Roman army was the most ruthless uh, machine on the planet, the US army of its day. And it's the Passover, so they would have been on, on super high alert, on the lookout for trouble. This is a time of great national fervour. The place would, would be absolutely pulsating. It would be kind of MI5 level critical. That's the sort of time that it was. Yet verse 7, when they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Jesus, this great longed-for, expected, liberating king, arrives on a donkey. The the crowd had recognised that Jesus was a king, but he wasn't the sort of king uh, they were expecting. They hadn't fully understood uh, the context of the prophecy of Zechariah. The actions of Jesus speak of something different, don't they? They speak of a kingship that is non-military, a new, a gentle kingship, kingship not of war, but one that is going to bring peace to all nations. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen quite a bit in the news about the leaked emails showing the online shopping habits of Asma Assad, uh, the, president, uh, the wife of President Assad of Syria. That's been quite disturbing stuff uh, to read, because we now know that whilst... Uh, Syria's armed forces were murdering uh, men, women and children in broad daylight uh, in the city of Homs. Asma Assad was clicking her way through websites, uh, spending £10,000 on candlesticks and chandeliers. It's an extreme, but, but not an atypical example of worldly leadership. Leaders at the top of the pyramids and everybody underneath often being crushed, being exploited, being abused. That's very often a pattern. In the the upside-down world of the kingdom of God, it is different. It's the other way around. It's the king who serves. Jesus' style of kingship is one of sacrifice rather than than power-broking. It's of meekness rather than, than grandstanding. 
service uh, rather than coercion. The leadership of Jesus is a leadership of service. It's what Jesus had been teaching his disciples uh, throughout his time with them. But they just hadn't got it. They hadn't hadn't grasped what he'd been saying to them. You you, you only have to go back to chapter 9, where Jesus had told them that he would be betrayed, he'd be killed, he'd, he'd rise again. What's their response? They start arguing amongst themselves about which of them was the greatest. It's unbelievable. They're looking for glory and power. What's Jesus' response in verse 35 of chapter 9? If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. That is, that is what Jesus is modelling now, isn't he? He's living it out even at the great moment of his coronation. Here on his coronation day, day, day Jesus chose humility. He chose service. He chose to go, to go to Jerusalem. He chose to ride on a donkey. He chose to wash his disciples' feet. He chose at the hurt of being betrayed by one of his friends. He chose, chose to be unjustly tried, mopped, spat on and whipped. And he chose to take on himself God's anger and the whole sin of the world as it was poured out on him. Your sin and my sin as he hung there on the cross. He chose that. This is a kingship of, of hidden, um, hidden majesty. The glory of Jesus wasn't displayed in a great army or a throne. Instead, the glory of Jesus was most visibly displayed as he hung there in agony on the cross. Why? Because the death of God's chosen king will open the floodgates of God's mercy and forgiveness. His blood's going to become like a fountain that will wash people clean of all their sins, all their impurities, and it will free them from judgment. And despite their cloak laying and their religious chanting, the crowd just hadn't understood uh, the king that Jesus was. And when it becomes clear uh, that Jesus isn't going to deliver, he's not going to take the Romans away from them, when he goes into the temple and clears it and starts creating trouble of the wrong kinds, they turn on him. What's their first priority? It's a final solution for Rome, not for their sins. And they've taken the symbolic act of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and they've, they've interpreted it or looked at it in line with their own agenda, their own cultural agenda, their own personal agenda. And they're only open to Jesus on their own terms. They're very fickle. I wonder how true is that of us? To what extent are we only open to Jesus on our own terms? If you're here this morning and you're not, and you're not a Christian, what is it that you make of Jesus? Here he is, riding into Jerusalem. What do you think of him? It's like Mark has taken out a camera and taken a photo of him and said, here he is, what do you think? Don't be mistaken. Don't, don't think that Jesus will solve all of your problems. 
or will give you everything that you hope for in this life. Following Jesus is not going to assure you of a life of great blessing or wealth or health or whatever it is that you dream of. It's not going to be glory now. If you believe that, then you might end up walking away from him when times get tough. But Jesus will deal with the biggest problem that you have. Jesus came to die as a ransom and exchange the righteous for the unrighteous. We who are unrighteous can be made righteous because of the death of Jesus on the cross. It is a great promise for all people for all time. Is that a promise that is true for you? For those of us who are here this morning and Christians, can I ask you this? How open are you uh, to Jesus? How open are you to him? How open is your heart uh, and your mind and your life to him? Like like the crowd lining the streets of Jerusalem, it looks as though uh, we understand. There's been lots of group enthusiasm at times in our singing. But what are the real terms of access that Jesus has uh, to our life? If someone looked at the contract that you've decided you're prepared to agree with Jesus for access to your life, how would it read? Is it an unqualified contract? Or is it full of conditioned precedents uh, and caveats? The pattern of Jesus' ministry was, was suffering first and glory later. And fundamentally, that is the same for the Christian life. The, the disciples hadn't got it. Have we got it? So often, we want to be king of our own lives, don't we? We want to wear the crown. It's not always obvious. We don't, we don't go out in public and put up two fingers to God. We're a bit more polite than that. We're a bit more subtle in our disobedience. So as God sits on the throne, we, we sort of ask him to shift over a bit. And then... Uh, we sort of perch on the edge of the throne. And when we think he's not looking, we take the crown off his head and we put it on our own head. And every so often, yeah, we bow to God. We give him a bit of a nod, a bit of an acknowledgement, perhaps on a Sunday. But when it really matters, when we're faced with those life choices, where we want to go our own way, do our own thing, we're the one who sits on the throne and, and God doesn't get to look in. It's easy to be open to Jesus when he fulfills our hopes or endorses our lifestyle or gives us what we want. When his call matches up to what we want to do. But what about those tougher corners of our hearts? Those places we keep hidden from the crowd in this church. Those places where we're still holding on and wanting to keep control. Jesus demands to be king of every part of our lives. And the question is, will we allow him to be? Will we fully surrender to him and will we trust him? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the, uh, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his, uh, his model of sacrifice and self-service. 